Chat.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And welcome to another informative hour regarding anything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and new insights into its causes, all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way endeavoring to better educate the general public regarding mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. And this podcast has been pre-recorded for first airing on Wednesday evening, October the 14th, 2015. Hope that you're enjoying your fall season well thus far. I found some interesting articles relating current issues in psychiatry and mental health. And let's get started right away with something that may answer a long-lingering controversy about whether antidepressant medications actually help to treat depression or whether they're little better than placebos. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with what this controversy is about, several years ago, someone published a paper looking at the results of clinical trials for antidepressants, and it was their contention that the data from these trials, from these research studies, really didn't justify any claim that antidepressant medications worked any better than placebos. And while it's very true that there are many studies which did find a benefit for the medication versus an inert dummy pill, the differences were very small, and there are certainly studies in which the active drug that's supposed to treat depression, or in some cases anxiety, didn't do any better than a placebo statistically at all. But what the author of that paper conveniently ignored is that clinical trials for mental health medications uh, have a very high hurdle to reach. Because regardless of whether a subject in one of those research studies is getting the real drug or a placebo, they're getting so much else that has its own benefit for their mental health. They get regular visits with the researchers who are themselves trained and credentialed mental health providers. They're getting remuneration for their participation in the study as long as they stay in it. They're getting, in some cases, remuneration and reimbursement for their transportation costs. They're getting free physical exam and laboratory studies. And regardless of how neutral the researchers try to be, uh, someone is interested in how they feel and showing them that interest uh, and trying to help them feel better or to see if they'll feel better. All of that contributes to someone feeling well. And um, so 
a real drug has already a high hurdle to jump over when it comes to doing better than a placebo. And in that case, really, if one understands the inner workings and mechanics of how psychiatric drug trials are conducted, and also the fact that people who go to these trials are not at all like the typical patient who goes into a primary care doctor's office or a psychiatrist's office asking for help with medication for anxiety or depression. So it really is very difficult to judge the true benefit of an active drug from what goes on in those trials. Now, <clears throat> here we have a new study that looks at what exactly is going on in terms of people responding to placebos. And I'm hopeful that the insights gleaned from research like what I'm about to discuss with you will give researchers clues as to how to really tease apart what is a placebo response and what is a true response from a medication. And my fervent hope personally is that it will lead to reforms in the way that clinical trials for medications are conducted so that uh, we get a truer picture of what the active drug under investigation can or cannot accomplish in treating a given disorder. So the article is called Placebo Power, Depressed People Who Respond to Fake Drugs Get the Most Help from Real Ones. There are different levels of brain response to the inert or fake treatment, and that could predict resilience in the face of depression and maybe help lead to new treatments. When it comes to treating depression, how well a person responds to a fake medicine may determine how well they respond to a real one, according to this new research. Those who are able to muster their brain's own chemical forces against depression, it appears, have a head start in overcoming its symptoms with help from a medication. But those whose brain chemistry doesn't react as much to a fake medicine or a placebo struggle even after getting an active drug. So let's take a look at that first point. What they're saying is that some of us apparently are innately placebo responders or, or people who will feel better when we're taking an inert placebo, uh, apparently because we're unknowingly rallying our own internal biochemical forces against the depression. And then those who are not placebo responders are less able to do that and less prone to react positively to a fake inert medicine. Now these findings were published in the journal called Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry and uh, the research was done at the University of Michigan Medical School. This helps to explain the variation in treatment response and resiliency that bedevils depression patients and their care teams. Think about it. If, if researchers and doctors could find a way to differentiate those among us who have the innate tendency to respond to placebos or not, that would definitely 
enable researchers to screen patients better for people who would be good research subjects. If you screen out the innately positive placebo responders and all you have are people who don't readily respond to placebo, then you're going to get a much better picture of who responded to the real drug or not and how. Now, this discovery also opens up the door to new research on how to amplify the brain's natural response in new ways to improve depression treatment for the estimated 350 million people worldwide who have depression at any given time. Think about this. If you could figure out how easy placebo responders can rally their own response and you can figure out what that mechanism is and uh, find a way to leverage that to help people feel better, uh, that would be incredible. Now, these findings could also help those developing and testing new drugs, helping them correct for the placebo effect that gets in the way of measuring a drug's true effect, as I was just saying. Now, this study comes from a team that has been looking at the placebo effect for more than a decade using sophisticated brain scanning techniques in healthy people. They were pioneers in showing that the brain's natural painkiller system, it's called the mu opioid system, responded to pain when patients got a placebo. And let me explain. Everyone is pretty much aware that the brain makes its own endorphins, okay? But the brain's own opioids are compounds that are analgesics. They dull the response to pain. Right, now the brain makes its own opioids. If you didn't know that, that might be surprising. Now, opioids are, you know, morphine and all its derivatives and analogs. Percocet, oxycodone, you know, hydrocodone, you name it. These are all opioids or opiates. And the brain makes its own natural compounds. Now, <clears throat> the researchers have also studied the genetic variation that makes certain people more likely to respond to sham painkillers, right? So you look at people who readily respond to placebo when it comes to pain. These are people who can readily make their own natural brain opioids respond when under pain, even if all they're getting is a placebo, not a true painkiller. So what they did is they looked at 35 people who had untreated major depression and who agreed to try what they thought was a new depression drug before receiving actual drugs already approved to treat depression. And what they found was that subjects reported improvement of depression symptoms after getting the placebo also had the strongest mu opioid response in brain regions involved in emotion and depression. Okay, so these high placebo responders for depression were the ones that are able to make the most natural painkillers in those pathways in the brain that are involved in emotion and depression. And these folks were also 
more likely to experience even fewer symptoms once they got a real drug. So that's an important point too. Uh, an, an unusually high placebo responder will also get even better when they take the real medication. You layer their own natural self-healing abilities when they're not even getting a fake drug on top of the effects of the real drug and they feel even better. In fact, they found that the response to the placebo predicted nearly half of the variation between individuals in total response to the entire study, including actual drug treatment. So that is the explanation for why it's so hard to get a real drug to work if you've got some people for whom half of their response is uh, able to happen on a placebo. All right, we'll continue discussing this study after this first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And our current topic is the power of placebos. Very interesting research shedding some light on the differences between people who respond to placebos and who don't. Now, according to the researchers, they feel this is the first objective evidence that when you're looking at response to both real antidepressants and fake ones or placebos, that the brain's own opioid system, that is its natural painkiller chemical response, is involved in this variation between response to real medication versus response to placebos. And they claim that it gives us a biomarker for treatment response in depression. In other words, an objective way to measure neurochemical compounds involved in response. 
kind of think that would be a tall order. I mean, how are you going to measure the levels of these mu opioids? Are you going to do a spinal tap and measure it in spinal fluid? That would be quite invasive. Well, regardless, uh, they say they can envision that by enhancing placebo effects that uh, there might be a way to develop faster-acting or better antidepressants. Now, <clears throat> there are some real-world examples of this that are not artificially created in a laboratory. It's not exactly news or a revelation that <clears throat> manipulating the opioid response in the brain can alleviate depression. Take, for example, painkiller addiction. Um, there are a lot of reasons and a lot of ways that a person might become uh, addicted to painkillers and abuse them. But um, an actually fairly frequent path toward painkiller addiction is that if a person responds to taking painkillers, okay, that these are exogenous or synthetic opioids as opposed to the brain's uh, natural opioids, uh, if someone responds to that, instead of just simply getting pain relief and usually, if they're like most people, getting a little bit tired, some sedation, right? That's a typical response to painkillers. There is a subset of people who actually feel like painkillers give their mood a boost, that they have a mood-elevating effect, that they relieve depression, give them more energy and focus instead of making them kind of tired and unfocused. And this is definitely not the typical response to painkillers, but it's this person who has this unusual response to painkillers who's most vulnerable to addiction. So really that's what the study results remind me of. You have the mu opioid system being naturally stimulated by people who respond to placebo antidepressants and uh, their depression gets better. Um, but again, it's reassuring to know their depression improves even further when they get a real drug instead of getting a placebo. Now, <clears throat> the placebo effect in this study came not only from the participants' belief that they were receiving a real drug, but also from the sheer impact of being in a treatment environment. And it's very important to me that the uh, study authors make that point. That's what I was talking to you about in the previous segment of the podcast, that just being in the treatment environment that is created by those conducting the clinical trial gives people emotional help and support and has its own placebo effect. Now, to play devil's advocate, you could argue, well, that's the same for people who are on placebo versus drug, right? So if the drug is real and it's effective, you should be able to still tell a difference, right? Well, that is true. Uh, but again, uh, the fact that there's so much placebo effect just from the environment in the study uh, it makes it that much more difficult for a real drug uh, to show a strong difference uh, between itself and placebo, and especially since you're talking about the fact that 
people vary so much in terms of their genetic and their brain, their genetics rather, and their brain chemistry. Uh, so even on real drug, individual response is quite commonly going to vary considerably. Now, even as scientists work to understand this effect further, clinicians who treat people with depression may want to take heed of the findings. The results suggest that some people are more responsive to the intention to treat their depression and may do better if psychotherapies or cognitive behavioral therapies that enhance the clinician-patient relationship are incorporated into their care as well as antidepressant medications. Uh, in other words, uh, the researcher says that we need to find out how to enhance the natural resiliency that some people appear to have. Their point is, okay, if we know that some people have an innate tendency to respond to placebos, even if we're giving them real medication, why not do everything we can to bring out and enhance and, yes, even exploit that person's innate placebo response. It will be additive with the real drug and they'll feel even better. Studies testing antidepressants against placebos suggest that 40% of the response is due to the placebo effect. To drug developers, obviously, as we've talked about, this is a tremendous nuisance. Uh, but not to placebo researchers, as we've seen. Now, if you respond to a medication and almost half or literally half of your response is due to a placebo effect, we need to know what makes you different than those who don't respond as well. And that could include genetic effects that are still yet to be discovered. Now, the new findings were made using PET scanning, positron emission tomography, or PET scanning. And in the PET scanner, uh, the subjects had a substance that attaches to receptors on brain cells that mu opioid molecules bind to injected before they were put in the scanner. So the researchers could look at the mu opioid receptors in their brain and, and see how people responded to placebos and then again to real medications. Now, <clears throat> the participants went in knowing that they wouldn't be told full details about the purpose of the study until the end. Uh, a clever intervention uh, so that the researchers could get a true, honest look at what was going on in the brain uh, without the subject's knowledge and anticipation and uh, expectations affecting the outcome. And then they gave them two weeks of the placebo pill, but during one of those weeks, even though each one was told they were taking uh, a substance that is believed to activate internal mechanisms and may have antidepressant properties. At the end of that week, they also had a brain scan and got a placebo injection that they were told might have fast-acting antidepressant properties. 
And then after these two weeks in another scan, they were prescribed a real antidepressant. And throughout the study, they were uh, assessed for depression using a standard measurement rating scale. The researchers are also looking at other molecules in the brain besides the opioids that are involved in depression and treatment response. And they're actively recruiting people for further brain scanning studies. In addition to aiding the search for better depression drugs to help placebo non-responders, this new study could help identify which patients might benefit from non-drug strategies known to help people who don't get relief from antidepressant drugs. Uh, again, you, for, if we know how uh, to enhance or foster or exploit the mechanism by which strong placebo responders feel better, uh, we can help those uh, who may not have as much of the innate tendency to harness or rally such a response. Very important research. Um, you know, I look forward to more research like this and potentially bringing about reform in the way psychiatric drug trials are conducted. Uh, it's an important issue, ladies and gentlemen, because it is so difficult for researchers to get a chemical that they think should help with depression or anxiety to show a positive result <clears throat> and to get the data to pass muster with the Food and Drug Administration so that years and many tens of millions of dollars of investment in this drug pay off, literally, that many, if not almost all, major pharmaceutical companies have abandoned the development of new psychiatric drugs. It's just too costly to develop them and have promising initial data eventually fail time after time, uh, wasting all that time, money, and effort. Uh, so the result is that drug companies are getting out of the business of psychiatric drug development and we're seeing fewer and fewer new drugs come to market. Uh, the <clears throat> ones that are being produced uh, are really just being dominated by fewer and fewer drug companies, and that does not augur well for treatment of mental illness going forward. Uh, for as many medications as we have, sadly there are still a large number of patients who don't respond to them and continue to suffer despite trying half a dozen or even a dozen or more different medications. And so, you know, that's why I've taken so much time on tonight's show to present you the results of this study. Uh, it's very important in terms of the future of psychiatric drug development. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll have a different topic when we come back on the other side of that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, now researchers are going after psychotherapy. It isn't bad enough that there are people who would negate the many hundreds of millions of people who have felt better with antidepressant medications. Now, some researchers are trying to claim that psychotherapy is also not effective in treating depression. In the earlier two segments of tonight's show, we talked about some research that would clarify why there are often not differences between placebo responders and people who take real antidepressant drugs. And uh, so here we have an echo of that uh, difference uh, in terms of drug trials and uh, looking at psychotherapy. Uh, That's right. These researchers say that the scientific literature overstates psychotherapy's effectiveness in treating depression, uh, comparing that effect to what was previously found with antidepressant drugs. And that is the conclusion of a study that was published on September 30th in the journal PLOS One. It is the follow-up to a study published in 2008 that created a considerable stir when it found a comparable publication bias in scientific articles reporting the efficacy of antidepressant drugs. And that's what we were talking about before. Um, You know, I just want to say something about this, and 
I'm stating clearly for the record, this is my own opinion. Um, you know, I'm not citing anything specific other than just my own uh, observations and reading and, and therefore formulating my own opinion. But the journal PLOS One, I don't consider to be a true scholarly publication. It is more of a forum for people to publish things commenting on or trying to negate or refute other scientific research published in more well-established scholarly journals that are peer-reviewed. Okay, so for example, let's go back to this, the study we talked about in the first two segments of the show. Um, <clears throat> the one we talked about how scientists are learning why some people respond better to placebos than others. That was published in a journal of the American Medical Association uh, journal, the one on psychiatry. Okay, that's one of the longest and best established and most respected medical journals of the world, the Journal of the AMA, uh, one of its um, sub-publications. Whereas, uh, you know, PLOS One has... Uh, just doesn't enjoy that reputation. Now, <clears throat> let's look at what else this study found. Uh, okay, the the person who published this study negating the effectiveness of psychiatry fortunately does say this doesn't mean that psychotherapy doesn't work. Psychotherapy does work, it just doesn't work as well as you would think from reading the scientific literature. Well, so he says the basic problem arises because clinical studies of the treatments for depression with more positive outcomes are more likely to be published than studies with less favorable results. This is called publication bias. Now, that is very much true. It is a, uh, a true effect. Now... <clears throat> It's well known to happen not only in clinical trials of psychotherapies, but uh, also quite notoriously for clinical trials of medications. And not just in psychiatry either, but in any field of medicine and uh, to, in terms of studying treatments of just about any medical problem you can think of. The research team identified all of the United States National Institutes of Health grants awarded to fund clinical trials of psychological treatments for depression from 1972 to 2008. I can only imagine that was a staggering amount of research, but they only found 55 grants during all that time, and nearly a quarter of them, 13 out of those 55, had not published their trial results. So what these researchers who just published this late September article did was they contacted the researchers of the 13 unpublished studies and requested their results. Now, what they did was they used this unpublished data and they combined it with the published data and then they conducted a series of meta-analyses 
of all of the data from which they concluded that, yes, okay, psychotherapy works, but that its effectiveness was inflated by publication bias. They say the study shows that publication bias occurs in psychotherapy, mirroring what we've seen previously with antidepressants and other drugs. Now, a question that was raised but not answered by that study was whether it was reasonable to recommend psychotherapy over drug treatment without examining whether publication bias might be occurring with psychotherapy too. All right, now, uh, the author goes on to say, journal articles are vetted through the process of peer review, but this process has loopholes allowing treatment benefits to be overstated and potential harms to be understated. The consumers of the skewed information are healthcare providers and ultimately their patients. Uh, I do not agree with that conclusion. Uh, there are not loopholes in the process of vetting and peer review of a journal article. Each article is looked at individually on its own merits. And if it doesn't pass muster in terms of peer review, it will not be published. Now, um, the people who review journal articles for scholarly journals uh, are not going to say, well, in order to get your article published, we need to look at the entire body of research to make sure publication bias isn't happening. Uh, maybe some people think they should, but that's simply not realistic. They're going to take a look at whatever is submitted to them, and if negative data, in other words, data that shows that treatment didn't work, are not submitted for publication, then of course it's not going to be reviewed and published and taken into account. <clears throat> so, I think at most you can say that the entire body of what is published may be biased in terms of exaggerating benefits, uh, but not likely to minimize harms uh, because uh, those uh, data are, are published. You know, whatever uh, goes wrong is, is always captured no matter what. Now, the authors suggest that both the funding agencies and the journals should archive the original proposals and raw data from the trials, both published and unpublished, so that this form of reporting bias can be detected and corrected in the future. Well, what I will say is, since the early to mid-2000s, it has been the case that you will see a negative study published more often. And I can cite uh, a tremendous amount of reading that I have been doing for past few years on a chemical compound called vortioxetine. Now, vortioxetine was submitted for approval to the Food and Drug Administration and was approved for the treatment of depression and became known as Rintelix. But there was quite a journey along the way, and many studies done on Brintelix 
in treating it in depression, looking at different doses, different populations, uh, comparing different doses to placebo, comparing different doses to uh, known and already approved antidepressants, studies done in the United States and Europe. Uh, and in that case, I can definitely say that there were some studies that were negative that were published. And I think that, you know, it is a good thing that there is some reform going on in medical publications uh, that researchers are not so afraid to publish the negative studies. And you can see from this example, it doesn't mean that if there were some negative studies that the medication wouldn't eventually be proven to work effectively. Um, <clears throat> now, from my readings, the differences between the negative studies and the positive ones that eventually led to the drug being approved was that the negative studies used much lower doses, like 5 and 10 milligrams. They didn't go up to 15 or 20. Uh, the, the studies that used 15 or 20 were positive. In other words, if the, the, med the medication helped depression at those doses, and uh, those were the studies that led to Brintelix getting approved. Uh, so I think actually... Here's a good example of how when you don't have the publication bias that the author of this study is complaining about, um, it actually may be helpful. Researchers will learn more about what doesn't work, try to study other ways of looking at the drug that might work better, like a higher dose, for example. And, um, you know, this, this led to looking at the whole body of work. Still turns out, hey, this is a useful compound it helps to treat depression uh, if you look at all the body of research. Uh, bottom line is this. Uh, again, I think that there is too much stigma already about the difficulty in getting help for depression, whether you're talking about psychotherapy and or medication, without people adding to that uh, by, by trying to negate all the work that's done uh, to find ways to help people feel better. Uh, this is very discouraging. I do not think it advances the cause of science whatsoever. All right, we'll, we'll have more on Psychiatry Today after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. I am again your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and we're talking about mental health-related news. Now, this article seemed intriguing when I first saw it. It says, want good mental health? Get religion. Now, it has always been known that someone who has a strong faith or uh, belief or belonging to a religious organization is better off in terms of recovering from any type of illness. Science has proven this many times. It doesn't matter what type of illness you're talking about, psychiatric or otherwise. doesn't matter what sort of <clears throat> religion or faith. Um, and science can't tell us exactly what the mechanism is, but there's definitely a correlation between someone having a strong faith or religious belief and um, that making a difference in recovery. So I thought, all right, well, let's see what, if any, new information this article has to offer. Well, it says that attending a church, a synagogue, or a mosque may be better for one's mental health than engaging in sports, furthering one's education, or volunteering. So say researchers at uh, the London School of Economics who studied the effects of these four types of activities on the mental health of 9,000 Europeans aged 50 and older. So they're obviously studying a very specific population. So right off the bat, uh, we can't say that this is going to be generalizable to the population as a whole. <clears throat> and it, it was reported in a recent issue of the American Journal of Epidemiology. It also found that some activities, like joining a community organization, like a political group, appear to result in less happiness in the long run. Fascinating, isn't it? Hmm. So, political organizations, I wonder if that possibly could include um, homeowners associations. <clears throat> How many of you think that could lead to happiness? I don't imagine too many. Uh, but <clears throat> one of the authors said the church appears to play a very important social role in keeping depression at bay and also as a coping mechanism during periods of illness in later life. Religious activities were the only ones of all the types of activities they studied to contribute to sustained happiness. Now I noted with interest 
that he said the church plays a very important social role. It's the social supports that are inherent in being involved in a religious group or organization like this that seem to help with depression. The researchers admit the study's sample size is small. Well, 9,000 isn't exactly tiny, but let's face it, they could have actually recruited a much larger group than that. And they were not investigating why, but rather whether these four types of activities influence happiness. And they do not note whether people in the study were new to these activities or whether there was crossover between them, but they do posit a few theories. And they say it is not clear to us how much this is about religion per se or whether it may be about the sense of belonging and not being socially isolated. This participation in groups like that can influence lifestyle choices. As for political organizations, and why might they result in lower happiness over the long run? Well, uh, the researcher was quoted as saying, participants receive a higher sense of reward when they first join an organization. But if it involves a lot of effort and they don't get much in return, the benefits may wear off after some time. Well, there you go. So if the candidate you're working to support doesn't make it, has to drop out of the race, what have you, uh, that's certainly going to lead to a lot of unhappiness, isn't it? Or maybe even the candidate is successful, but the work is so hard that the payoff isn't worth it. So actually, <clears throat> I think that with all the limitations of the research, I definitely think that it, uh, it does support the idea that it is social belonging and the uh, avoiding social isolation and social support that comes with a religious organization, no matter what the religious persuasion may be, that is helpful in treating depression. And that makes perfect sense. Um, if you have the social support of other people, uh, certainly that's going to help you recover from any illness, including depression. And uh, really, so it's more about that uh, than religion per se. I agree with that, that conclusion of the researchers. <clears throat> and again, um, they weren't looking more deeply at, okay, how fervent a believer is someone or not. You know, they're just looking at these activities, again, uh, church or uh, other religious organization belonging versus political group belonging versus uh, education, sports, or volunteering. Uh, so there you have it. Okay, join a religious organization, participate actively. Uh, no matter how observant you are, uh, you're more likely to have better social supports and more likely to feel better. All right, here's another interesting <clears throat> article that I found wanted to bring to you and discuss with you. Um, 
Maybe you actually heard or read about this. It said that washing dishes decreases stress. Now, on the surface, that really? Washing dishes? What many, if not most people, consider an onerous task that they would gladly avoid or procrastinate? That is a stress reliever? How can that be? Well, I decided, well, this deserves some further examination. So is it indeed a chore or a stress reliever? Uh, Washing those dreadful dishes after a long day seems like the furthest thing from relaxation. Or is it? Well, student and faculty researchers at Florida State University have found that mindfully washing dishes calms the mind and decreases stress. Now, right off the bat, you're like, what? How does one mindfully wash the dishes? Okay, I guess we're about to find out. Now, this was published in the journal Mindfulness. Wow, there's now a journal totally devoted to the study of mindfulness. There you go. The study looked at whether washing dishes could be used as an informal contemplative practice that promotes a positive state of mindfulness, a meditative method of focusing on attention on the emotions and thoughts of the present moment. That's what mindfulness is. You're just focusing your attention on what you're thinking and feeling right in the moment, not anything else. Now, the authors were particularly interested in how the mundane activities in life could be used to promote a mindful state and thus increase overall sense of well-being. And they just happened to look at this one particular activity, washing dishes. Now, after conducting a study with 51 students, the researchers found that Mindful dishwashers, those who focused on the smell of the soap, the warmth of the water, the feel of the dishes, reported a decrease in nervousness by 27%, almost a third, and an increase in mental inspiration by 25%. The control group who just got through the chore without trying to do it mindfully, as it were, didn't experience any benefits. Okay, now some of you are probably thinking, this is what passes for scholarly research at a major university? You're joking, right? How much did did this cost? And there are some of you who may be thinking, wow, that's really fascinating. That's really cool. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle, I guess, but I actually think There is something to this, as silly as it sounds. Um, I think that it certainly is the case that for some people, even otherwise mindless, pun intended, drudgery around the house, if it is done mindfully, can be a stress reliever. Now, I can tell you, I can relate to this personally, not that I feel like washing the dishes for me personally is something that I look forward to or enjoy doing for relieving stress. No, for me, it's doing yard work. Not just cutting the grass, but really going all around the yard, uh, going through the 
bushes and flower beds, uh, pulling bad weeds, picking up stray branches, pine cones, what have you. Um, you know, just going through everything and seeing the yard look better as I do it. Uh, you know, that, uh, I think without intending to set out to do something mindfully and consciously saying, well, I'm going to mindfully take care of the yard and that's going to reduce my stress. Um, in thinking about the technique of the study and what they were looking at in terms of the people washing the dishes, uh, I can see how really any given activity, depending on the individual, could be done mindfully and could help relieve stress. Uh, it's something that, um, instead of being drudgery, might give someone a sense of peace and calm and satisfaction and therefore relieve stress. Now, for any of you listening, maybe it is washing the dishes. Maybe it is taking care of the yard, like for me. Maybe it's even ironing for some people, believe it or not. What have you? Uh, the point is, um, <clears throat> anything that you do mindfully uh, may be something that would help relieve stress. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of tonight's podcast. I appreciate your kind attention and your listening. I hope you found the information helpful and informative. And I hope that till we meet again next week, you have a wonderful stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.